friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and this week on Conversations with Consequences, I have my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, joining me. And we've asked another friend of ours, Carter Sneed, to join us on the show. He's a professor of law and director of the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. He's one of the world's leading experts on public bioethics, and he's out with a new book on the subject entitled, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Public bioethics. Now, Carter has a very impressive resume. In 2008, he was appointed by the Director General of UNESCO to a four-year term on the International Bioethics Committee. In 2016, he was appointed to the Pontifical Academy for Life, and that's the principal bioethics advisory board to Pope Francis. So we asked uh, Carter to join us because we want to talk about his new book. But later on in the show, we also want to get his reaction to who we're calling the person we're calling the Great Justice, Amy Coney Barrett because he is a personal friend of hers. He can also enlighten us about that. So, Carter, congratulations on um, your new book. And, Thank, you. Uh, Thank it's, you very much. It's quite amazing. And we wanted to know why you felt that you wanted to enter the conversation on this subject and what you were trying to achieve with your book. Well, thanks for the question. And thanks to both of you. It's wonderful to have a conversation with you. And it's wonderful to be on your show, which is such an important and, and compelling program. We're, we're grateful for the, the existence of your show as well. So why did I write the book? So I, I've been involved in public bioethics, both in the domestic sphere and the international sphere, for almost 20 years. I was general counsel to President Bush's Council on Bioethics, and under the tutelage and mentorship of Dr. Leon Cass, who's an amazing man in his own right. And, uh, you know, over the years, we grappled with questions relating to assisted reproductive technologies, end-of-life decision-making, including assisted suicide, questions relating to abortion and cloning and embryo research, and uh, I always felt that there was a common thread that ran through the laws and public policies that fell short of protecting the most vulnerable among us and to fully respecting human dignity in all of its complexity. And I was sort of grappling with what that common thread was and over time came to the view that the real failing in our in our laws, both on the, the domestic side and the international side, uh, with respect to public bioethics is it fails to take seriously the the genuine human identity and flourishing in all of its complexity. And what I mean by that is it embraces what we Catholics and famously Catholic novelist Walker Percy called it fails to embrace a full anthropology of what it means to be uh, of, of what it means to be a human being. That is a full account of human identity and human flourishing. And the law, all law, and this, this probably won't be surprising to your listeners to hear me say this, but all law aims at and is designed to promote the flourishing of persons and to protect persons. That's what law is for. And so all law has to have a premise about what a 
person is and what constitutes human flourishing. Otherwise, the law will be, at best, you know, capricious and, and artificial. It won't be wise, just, and humane. And what I argue in the book is to get law right, especially the law that relates to vulnerable people at the beginning of their life, at the end of their life, who are suffering in different ways in the midst of their life, the law has to be grounded in a true and accurate account of who and what we are. And so I try to criticize the areas of law in which I think this is especially problematic, namely the uh, law of abortion, the law of assisted reproductive technologies, and the end-of-life decision-making laws and public policies, and diagnose the false anthropology that underwrites those areas, and then propose a new set of goods, practices, and virtues that are appropriate to what we are as embodied beings. Carter, I think your insights are, uh, on the one hand, they're so simple, but on the other hand, they're so brilliant and complex. So, I mean, you're basically saying that if our anthropology is wrong, if our understanding of the human person is wrong, then our laws are going to get it wrong and fail to protect human flourishing. So can you talk a little bit more about how our current anthropology is wrong? How do, in our culture today, how are we misconceiving the human person? And you you talk about this term expressive individualism. Yes, absolutely. So at present, our law, again, the law of abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision-making, have an assumption about what a person is that falls far short of what I believe is the reality of the matter. And if we reflect on our on our lived experience, we, we see pretty quickly quickly that the, 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 the law's current image of the person falls short. And it's exactly what you said. It's what Robert Bella in 1985, who wrote a, a, a book called Habits of the Heart, where he surveyed hundreds of Americans and asked them about their own self-understanding and found a vision of themselves that he was disturbed by. People understood themselves through the lens, of, oh, solely through the lens of their desires, the idea that they identified identified themselves as mere wills. They took, they didn't take seriously the fact that they were embedded in a web of relations, social relationships and traditions and cultures. People thought of the fundamental unit of human reality as being the individual atomized self. And the self is defined as the will or as the, as, as the, the bundle of desires that one happens to have. And human flourishing in this framework is a person interrogating the interior of their own depths of their, of their self without regard to their relationships with other people, without regards to, to their community, to their histories or traditions, and to find inside themselves an original, unique, authentic truth, sort of in quotation marks, and then to express that truth and, to the, and then to configure their lives in, in, in pursuit of the desires that, that come from inside themselves. And that is a, an image that in some ways is attractive, right, to Americans because it's a certain kind of very robust freedom and it assumes a person to be kind of at the height of their cognitive powers, you know, making their own way in the world, regardless of connections or histories or attachments. And there's a certain kind of romantic appeal to that, especially for people who don't have families. But it falls entirely short when, when you think about the, the reality of our embodied life, because we are and we live our lives, we come into the world and live our lives as bodies, bodies that are corruptible, bodies that die, bodies that get sick, bodies. And as a result of our embodiment, it matters that we are situated in a relationship to one another because we're mutually dependent, because we're vulnerable, and because we're subject to these natural limits of both illness and death. And through the lens of expressive individualism, the law can't see our vulnerability, it can't see our mutual dependence, and most 
troubling of all for public policy and law and bioethics is it can't see those vulnerable others to whom we have obligations that we didn't choose to care for, and the elderly, the disabled, and children, including unborn children. And so if you if you assume the person is a disembodied, atomized will that bestrides the universe seeking to find its own way, there are a whole lot of vulnerable people, and Pope Francis talks about this in a beautiful way about the throwaway culture, there are a whole lot of people that are going to get left behind, and it can't even make sense of the notion of parents and children. The only obligations in the world of expressive individualism are the obligations that I freely choose. All of my relationships are instrumental, instrumental to the realization of my own goals, including my relationships to my family and to my own children. And you see this, if you look at the law of abortion, if you look at the law, the absence of law of assisted reproduction, if you look at the law of end of life decision making, all of those legal doctrines and principles and structures are built on this false image of the atomized individual will completely abstracted from his or her relationships, including relationships to people that he or she has to take care of, namely children and the elderly and the disabled. So Carter, your book is not all about what's going wrong. Your book actually points a way forward. So tell us if you can, in a quick way, because your book does go deep, what is the way forward for us? Absolutely. So I try to take my inspiration from Alistair McIntyre, arguably the greatest living Catholic philosopher who was also a fellow of the Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture, who made, the, who made the point in a book called Dependent Rational Animals that human dependency requires what he calls networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. Embodied being, I argue in the book that as embodied beings, to flourish, we have to have these networks of people who are genuinely willing to make the good of someone else their own good without any contract, without any transaction, without any hope of, of gaining anything in, in response of any kind. And we're back again to the concept of parenthood. Parenthood is the network of giving and, and receiving par excellence. Parents don't care for their children because their children, because there's some prior agreement to do so. They care for their children because of who their child is. They make the good of the child their own good. And then you sort of go out from there. And what you need to do is build up a, a community of people who are willing to make the good of others their own through the practice of virtues and goods like hospitality, just generosity, misericordia, which is accompaniment of others in suffering, gratitude, openness to the unbidden, respect for human dignity, solidarity, honesty, basically all of the virtues of authentic friendship. And so to put it most succinctly, my book argues that because we are embodied beings, we are made for love and friendship. And the law, if it's going to be just and humane, has to reflect that. And I make the case for how that can be done and what the law needs to do to bring us towards a fuller anthropology of who we are and what we owe to each other. So human happiness is posited as the perfect autonomy of, of the person, of, of the will of expressing his own or her own desires at any one time, their inner sense of self, and then going and, and acting on that. How did we come here, though, Carter? Obviously, traditional cultures for centuries and, and eons viewed a man and woman as placed in, in a network of relationships, of, of duties, uh, part of a clan, a family, a city politic. How did we become a culture of personal autonomy as the highest good. Yeah, so it's in, it, several interesting threads come together here. If it, uh, Charles Taylor, Catholic philosopher from Canada, brilliant, brilliant philosopher, has a very interesting intellectual genealogy of expressive individualism that I trace <clears throat> in the book. It sort of begins with Enlightenment philosophers and then becomes amplified through the Romantic literary movement, where you have authors like Byron and Shelley and others who are rebelling against harmony and order 
order and the kinds of role-based morality that you just described and trying to valorize the notion of individuality and authenticity and, and rebelling in some ways very socially transgressive ways against the cultures in which they were embedded. And this became a common thread in literature and art. But then in, in America, it sort of made it, and Bella traces this in his social science, it kind of makes its way into the normal American culture, especially in the, in the 60s, especially during the sexual revolution and the flower generation, where sexual expression becomes a primary mode of expressing the authentic truths, the transgressive truths from inside oneself. And Bella talks about the sort of Freudian psychology, new corporate forms, the sort of isolation, different cultural shifts in industry in the United States and the way business was practiced that led to this kind of vision of the atomized individual self as the primary unit of reality for normal Americans, not for, you know, not for novelists and artists, but rather for, for normal everyday Americans. And in the context of medical ethics, there was a massive shift in the 20th century away from the notion of doctors and patients being an almost ministerial relationship where the doctor was there to heal not just the patient's illness, but also to minister to the patient's human needs, to be present to the family. And as the practice of medicine changed and as doctors sort of came at least at least perceived to, to be seen as more technicians, more focused on working on a patient as a problem rather than a human being, there's the massive backlash between the embrace of paternalism in medical practice to a real strong swing in the opposite direction, embracing patient autonomy is the principal norm hmm. that had to be recognized. But as I say in the book, this is a, a very corrupting kind of swing because it ends up leaving behind the people who are the most dependent, the most vulnerable, people who can't do the things that are prioritized and privileged in the world of expressive individualism, people who can't formulate their, their future directed plans and pursue them as an unencumbered self. And as you as a physician know, when a person is sick and they go to the doctor, they're not seeking to impose their unencumbered will on the world. They just want help. They want <laughs> someone who knows what they're doing to help them. And that's not a relationship that's visible or intelligible through the lens of expressive individualism. Carter, on your previous point, I was particularly struck by your analysis in the book of the trajectory of Supreme Court abortion law, which parallels just what you were talking about. Can you explain to us how, how this played out from Roe v. Wade to Planned Parenthood v. Casey and later in cases like Carhartt, which of course have been such a travesty for mothers and their unborn children. But, but you talk about how the legal argument for abortion changes and shifts from first it was the right to privacy, then a right to liberty, and finally, as Justice Ginsburg argued, a necessity for true equality. Yeah, absolutely. And what you're putting your finger on, Molly, is the fact that our abortion law has been an unstable doctrinally from the very beginning. First of all, it's, it has no connection to the text, history, and tradition of the Constitution. The suggestion that the 14th Amendment ratified in 1868 that provides due process before the state can remove can, can can impose limits on your life, liberty, or property has nothing to do historically or textually with with prohibiting the states from providing even minimal protections to unborn children. It's 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 this it was a naked power grab by the court to begin with. So it shouldn't be surprising that its analytic foundations have been unstable from the very beginning. And as you say, it begins with this right to privacy that was actually first announced in Griswold versus Connecticut, a 1965 case about contraception, uh, the use of contraception by married couples. And and this notion of privacy is very much in the wheelhouse of expressive individualism. It, it thinks about, in the, in the Roe v. Wade context, it, it frames the question as the mother versus the child. Of course, they don't call it a child. They call it potential life, something less than a person. So it's a, a mother who's a person 
whose interests collide in, in a zero-sum conflict with, an, with a stranger, right? a sub-personal stranger and a mother, two strangers fighting over scarce resources, how the court describes it. And it describes unplanned pregnancy and unplanned parenthood as being deeply wounding and difficult. And of course, they can be, and they are, and demands our, our compassion and our care when a person is confronted with that sort of a, a situation. But it describes it really as the clash of atomized individual selves, one of which is a person, one of which is not a person, <laughs> it suggests that the woman, and, and it, it provides a, it provides the woman with the right to define the, the meaning of the unborn child's life according to her own interests, according to her own wishes, and forbids the state from taking a view at all on the legal personhood of the unborn child, because that would encroach too much upon the autonomy and self-determination of the woman and the privacy, according to Roe v. Wade, of the woman who is who is suffering from the unplanned pregnancy. And so the woman, it's a it's a kind of right to kill that is granted to oneself that isn't shouldn't be surprising if you think of the world and the universe as a universe of atomized individual wills locked in competition with one another to realize their dreams. The right to kill is an important right if that's if if the world is a world of strife in which no one is connected to anyone else and it's a, basically a battle of all against all trying to pursue their dreams. But as you said in Casey that concept of privacy which is you know really makes sense in the context of expressive individualism shifts to liberty. And then we get probably the most concise articulation of expressive individualism in any Supreme Court opinion I've ever seen, which is Justice Kennedy's mystery of life passage, where he says, it's at the heart of liberty is the is the freedom to define the meaning of life and one and to and to blaze one's own pathway forward unencumbered by the judgments of others and certainly the judgment of the state to pursue your destiny this is basically almost pure expressive individualism this phrasing this this, this account of liberty it's a, an account of liberty that completely ignores any relationship any embeddedness in a web of relations and it utterly and what's utterly invisible to this again is the notion of parenthood the sort of unchosen obligation par excellence a child is not doesn't have to earn the right to be cared for by his or her parents a parent uh, owes an obligation of care to that child by virtue of the fact that they're a parent not by virtue and of course that obligation can be discharged by making an adoption plan if that's what the circumstances warrant but nevertheless that parent has to take care of that child that's something that in other areas of the law is recognized we don't think of children as atomized wills that have to earn the privilege of being protected from violence against others uh, by their parents and so and then finally as you said justice ginsburg in the gonzalez versus Carhartt decision in her dissent, the, the decision that affirmed the constitutionality of the federal partial birth abortion ban, she says abortion is essential. It's absolutely essential to women because women have to have the freedom to participate on, an, on a free and equal footing in the economic and social life of the nation. And that, again, what you see is abortion is a weapon. It's a, it's a, it's a weapon of rational mastery that an individual atomized will has to have if it's going to pursue its dream of uh, and its unencumbered destiny without interference from others and certainly without interference from the state. Moving on to uh, your analysis of assisted reproductive technology. You have a particularly strong critique of how there's sort of a wild west uh, and, and a lack of governmental regulation of this field, which so, you know, deeply affects human life. So the chapter on, on assisted reproduction begins with two quotes, and the quotes really capture the spirit of the legal landscape here in the United States on assisted reproduction. First quote is from a guy named John Robertson, who was a law professor and also very heavily 
heavily involved in the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is the principal professional society in the ART and IVF domain. And he says that the choice whether or not to bear, and I'm paraphrasing, the choice to whether or not to bear a child is essential to self-expression and self-understanding, right? And then the second quote is from a guy named Dr. Jerry Shatton, who gave testimony to us when, when I was with the President's Council on Bioethics. And we asked him six weeks in advance to think about the question of how to think about genetic selection technologies and its role in assisted reproduction, and to think about, give us the the what you think the ultimate purpose of of assisted reproductive technologies, IVF, as in as augmented by different kinds of screening techniques like pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and others where they where they check for the sex of the embryo, the living embryonic human being before they transfer it to the woman's uterus to initiate a pregnancy, or if they check for certain kinds of medical uh, infirmities or other kinds of non-medical related traits that they're able to test for. And what he said after six weeks of reflection, worth including in the book, and I did, say that, that assisted reproductive technology is allowing parents to realize their dreams of a disease-free legacy. And the amazing thing about that quote is that the word child doesn't appear in it. Right. The word parent appears. And I guess if you are implying that children exist, if you're a parent, but it's an extraordinary and almost breathtaking idea that the purpose of IVF, the purpose of reproductive medicine, at least as the law understands it, and I'm not describing the, the motives and desires of people who seek fertility treatments. That's a different question. What I'm talking about is what the vision of the person that the law assumes is that, that the purpose of IVF, the purpose of, of these kinds of practices and techniques is for people to realize their own individual goals, to their own expressive goals to pursue their dreams, which may or may not include a child or may include a child of a particular kind or with particular traits or without particular traits. And the absence of law in this domain is sort of the opposite of the, of the abortion context. There's no real meaningful restraint other than the, the laws of medical malpractice and the licensure and certification of physicians, which which are, are pretty, pretty blunt instruments and have not really been used very much in the IVF context. There's no law that concerns itself with the well-being and safety of women who seek these procedures, gestational surrogates, uh, gamete donors, uh, women who are paid thousands of dollars to donate their eggs, especially college-age women. And obviously, there's nothing in place to protect the well-being of the child who's conceived with the aid of these techniques. Uh, we see all kinds of difficulties associated with premature births, all the health problems that go along with it because of the multiple gestations, because there's no there's no regulation at all of the number of embryos that can be created or transferred during one uh, IVF cycle. There are all kinds, the CDC has published uh, higher correlations of autism and birth defects associated with different kinds of aspects of IVF. There are no laws against that. There are no laws regulating that. There's only very a very weak consumer protection law. And so what, what emerges from a, a, an inductive analysis of the law of assisted reproduction is a vision of the person and a vision of human freedom that almost perfectly tracks expressive individualism. What I argue in the book, and this is important to underscore as well, is that's not a freedom that people suffering from infertility need or want. People don't go to an IVF clinic to in assert their unencumbered will. They, they are desperate to become parents. That's why they go to IVF clinics. That's why they seek fertility treatments. And the law should take account of the human reality rather than having a completely unfettered free-for-all, which is basically what we have in the United States. You know what worries me uh, also, uh, beside all the things you mentioned, is that the child, the creation of the child has become a right. Anybody, it, infertility is no longer considered 
as normal infertility, medical infertility, but social infertility. So anybody in any stage of life, in any condition of life, has the right to create a child by any of these technologies. And I think that commodifies the child even more and takes away the our sense of humanity of the child and as a person who must be protected and dignified. Yeah, there's no protection in place for children, for parents, for gestational surrogates, for gamete donors. There's virtually no protection at all other than the market, other than very weak consumer protection laws and the baseline laws of, of, of uh, medical malpractice and licensure and certification of doctors. You're exactly right. Uh, basically, it's, an, it's a wide open, wild west. And uh, in the book, uh, for those who are interested, I, I sort of survey the philosophical underpinnings of John Robertson, who was the chief ethics uh, official for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, who also sat on many, many committees, uh, federal and state level committees relating to these questions over decades and decades. And his vision, uh, his radical sort of libertarian vision of reproductive freedom as a mode of expression or a channel of personal expression really is the it give is is, is gives uh, the best account of what the legal landscape looks like carter we know we only have you for just a minute left but we wanted to uh, get your thoughts on our newest justice amy coney barrett who of course you have worked with for over 15 years at notre dame law school uh, so this is really a huge moment for notre dame law school and for the denicola center for ethics and culture um, and i know at notre dame law you really emphasize excellence with a purpose. I'd just love to hear your pitch for Notre Dame Law School as a Catholic (laughs) law school that also excels at the highest of professional levels and also any personal stories you might want to share about our newest justice. Yeah, no, so it's a blessing to be a member of the faculty of the University of Notre Dame Law School. It is the law school of the Blessed Mother's University. And what we've done over the past 25 years is to create a a faculty uh, who are both the uh, elite in the sense that they are the very best at what they do, engaged in supporting our students because we think of that as part of the mission and the community of learning that we have, Uh, but also those who understand themselves as participating in a larger mission of the greatest Catholic university in the world, the University of Notre Dame. And so I remember when I sat down to be hired at Notre Dame in in 2004, Patty O'Hara, then the dean who introduced now Justice Barrett before the committee, looked me right in the eye and said, Paul, I want you to understand something. Here at the University of Notre Dame Law School, every hire is a mission hire. Every hire is a mission hire. And I joined the faculty, and I came to realize very quickly that that was 100% true. And Amy Coney Barrett is a perfect embodiment uh, at the highest level of what we at Notre Dame Law School are trying to accomplish, which is to cultivate the very most brilliant minds as aimed at serving a good that is higher than themselves, higher than learning to be a, a doctrinal technician, but rather to understand the purpose of law is to serve persons and to glorify God. And that is, and if you read Justice Barrett's commencement address from a few years ago, when she was selected, I think, for the third time to be professor of the year, she talks about that. She talks about the role of, of the law and our role as lawyers is to, is to serve others and to serve God. She's an amazing person. She's obviously brilliant. She's unbelievably humane and decent and honest and humble and open-minded. And we're so sad to see her go, but it is for the greater good that she go on to D.C. and become the fifth woman justice on the Supreme Court of the United States. Well, it was not only a great moment for Notre Dame, but for the rest, I think also for uh, American women and American girls. And it's wonderful to hear about your book, Carter. We highly recommend it to our listeners. So thank you, Carter Sneed, for joining us on Conversations with Consequences. Thank you, Marion Gracie. You guys are the best.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my co-host and TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson. We're very happy to have Father Bill Byrne with us. He's now Bishop-elect Byrne to discuss his new book called Five Things with Father Bill, Hope, Humor, and Help for the Soul. Father Bill is a well-known YouTube personality and columnist. Welcome, Father, to Conversations with Consequences. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Father Bill, we are so grateful you're able to talk to us today. We know you have a lot on your plate right now because you just got a phone call from (laughs) Papal Nuncio informing you that Pope Francis is appointing you to be the Bishop of Springfield, Massachusetts. So we want to hear about that phone call. And having known you as Father Bill for about 10 years, I want to know when do we start calling you your eminence? Well, that would be for a while. That would be only if I were ever made a cardinal. So we start with Your Excellency, which is kind of oh, ironic. <laughs> That's right. I think because I think the thing I'm probably most excellent is making an alamatriciana pasta sauce. Um, <laughs> so that limits me. But I did on the feast of the guardian angels of all things. My guardian angel must have had a sense of humor. I got a call, and a two hundred two number popped up on my phone, and of course I didn't answer it because you don't answer things if you don't know the number. <laughs> and then it went to voicemail. I was like, ooh, who's that? And then there was this French accented voice of Christophe. This is Archbishop Christophe Pierre. And he said, Father Bill Byrne, please call me at your earliest convenience. And I was immediately, my hand started to shake. <laughs> like, holy moly. And so I got a, I called him back and he said, Nice weather we're having here, isn't it? <laughs> like, uh, let's cut to the chase. Because I know you're not, I didn't say this, but my thought bubble was, I know you're not calling me for decorating advice or, you know, the right <laughs> word for, for this paragraph. And he said, the Holy Father wants to name you. And then there was a pause. And I'm a, a bishop of, and I'm like, where, where, where? And then he said, Springfield in Massachusetts. And I'd gone to school 45 minutes west of that. So I was kind of sort of familiar with it from years back. But I'm very excited to, for the trust that the Holy Father has placed in me in this new duties. Wow. Well, it, it's such a sign of hope for the church, although we, your parishioners, are just heartbroken. You will be missed by so many of us, especially my children. My daughters actually burst into tears when they heard that Father Bill was leaving. But really, honestly, it was no surprise to us because you're such a wonderful and holy priest and you're so gifted in inspiring vocations and so gifted in uh, communicating the faith, which brings us to your book. So five things with Father Bill, hope, humor and help for the soul. We hope all of our listeners will pick up a copy for themselves, maybe order multiple copies. It's a great Christmas gift, great gift for any occasion, really. But but tell us, what led you to write this book? It began as a, a series of uh, columns that I had written in our Catholic Standard newspaper, and I had done it for years. And suddenly, it thought I thought, wow, these could be a book. And uh, your neighbor and my old friend from high school and college, Mark Shiro, was the one who he hounded me. And not, it's not like suggested. It was more like I, he wouldn't talk about anything else until I actually did it. And, I, and so uh, Loyola Press, I put them all together and Loyola Press tidied them up and put some awesome illustrations. And uh, it went, it was released the day after I was named a bishop. <laughs> Talk about a week. Wow. You know, Father Bill, the, I love the organization of the book because lists are a very practical way of organizing. That's how we organize our minds. 
minds in many ways. And I like that each chapter of the book gives us five different things to focus on. I find that very practical and also something that really reaches into into the way that um, into the way that we organize ourselves mentally. So we can sort of handle little bits of information and then put that into action. And I also think what I what I really tried to show in uh, throughout each chapter of the book and each one of illustration is that God is constantly speaking to us. And if we can, you know, we fine tune that by spending time before in church, before the Lord. But then we start to see his, it's almost as if he's playing this beautiful music all around us. And we can notice him in, by listening to our heart. And when, and that's what I, I wanted to illustrate to people is just how God speaks to me in these multiple ways through when I make up my own mysteries of the rosary or think about my dog and how my dog acts. That's what I was really hoping for people to experience. One of the first sections that I read was the section on the dog. It says, uh, things I learned from my dog. And I guess I I read it first because it's the first chapter. (laughs) Yeah. But it really called to my, it called my attention because we bought our our daughter, our youngest daughter, we bought her a COVID, we're calling a COVID puppy because she spent many months alone. (laughs) And so we've been raising this puppy for the last three months. And it's a puppy, a, a dog is a charm thing and and it really spoke to me how you connected that the kind of love that dogs exhibit their the the acceptance that they show and the the wonderful tolerance that they have for for, for all our foibles and and well, connect I mean, that to the God the way God relates to us in some ways so the, the there's also a chapter on puppies and uh, because I think my experience unless your puppy is different than any of mine is that at first you don't experience this over dramatic love for the dog you sort of wade your way through diminishing regret you know <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you as you when regret you your carpets that, you that regret shoe. the state the state of your carpets <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the pillows that throw pillow you loved has you know now been gnawed on or uh, and then eventually as the dog is you the dog and you grow together then it's then it becomes much more fun so hang in there (laughs) so so the book title comes from your columns you mentioned and it's organized in these short little chapters which i love because i feel like in our age of technology all of our attention spans seem to have gotten a little shorter so the there are 50 short little chapters but the common theme seems to be about really embracing joy. It has such a joyful tone. So tell us, why is this so important for us Catholics? And you're just uniquely talented in conveying that joy. What's the secret of your your joy? I think well, part the secret of my joy, of course, is the Lord, knowing how well I'm loved and how well we all are loved, that we were planned from the beginning, that before we were born, He knew our name and called us to our mother's womb. You know, that's a that's a powerful and unique experience. And if we can open our minds and hearts to that. But I also, when people ask me how I am, I say, I'm fantastic. And, and it's because I have to, we have to decide to be joyful. It's happiness is not a is not a destination we get through when I get this job or when I get that. Happiness is the byproduct of living the good life mm-hmm. and doing the good. And so if we seek to fill each day with that and put our priority list in order, then you're going to be joyful, even if you are in the most challenging situations. You know, I always say to myself, and I think about this, I think of you moms when your kids were little and it's they're, they're four years old and in the coughing and you've got the shower running and they've got the group or whatever it is. And you've got a busy day the next day, but you're still there. You don't want to be there, 
but you wouldn't be anyplace else mm-hmm. in the world. <laughs> and so that experience is like, I don't want to be here, but I have to be here because this is where the Lord's asking me to be. Mm-hmm. Such great perspective. Father Bill, in your homilies, you so often make a great pitch for going to confession, and you have a chapter in the book about this. And I've, I've heard you make the point that Catholics get this bad rap for the the idea of Catholic guilt. But in reality, you say that we're the faith that has this sacrament to be rid of guilt. And you're so good at pitching confession, and you offer confession before even daily Mass, before all the Sunday Masses, which we love. So tell us about your chapter on learning to love confession. Well, you know, one of the things that, that we have to, just as an illustration, is, is I say, you, you take out the garbage in your kitchen or else it stinks after a while, you know? Well, the the sin is not who we are, it's who we're not. And so the the every time we make a decision to not be ourselves, that sort of false us grows. And in confession, the Lord wipes that away, wipes that non-you away. That, as Thomas Aquinas says, the mercy is moving from non-being to being, to being more fully alive. And so why would we want to be anything but most fully alive? And so we find ourselves repeating our sins. Well, at least you're not coming up with new ones, you know? <laughs> and... Um, Um, the power of that experience of getting rid of everything that's yucky in the kitchen. I'm kind of a a kitchen freak. I I like to go to bed with a perfectly clean kitchen to come down and to find something in the sink. I don't like to start my day that way. And so poor Father Joe and Seminary and Sean have learned, learned that. And I think it's the same way with starting our day or our week with that freshness. Father, um, We are in the month of November, and of course we pray in a very special way for our dead and um, remember them all month long. And it reminds me of your chapter on getting ready for heaven, which I liked a lot. Can you tell us about that chapter? Yeah, I... um so one of the first things to remember is is you don't want to presume heaven, you know, because if you just presume like if you presume that you, the person you love is just going to love you back, you're not loving very well, you know. And the same is true with God. If we just say, oh well, how do you get to heaven? Oh, I guess I just die. Well, what about that whole experience of relationship and love? Um, you know, one of the things uh, is also uh, this experience of prayer. So I know. My my best friend from grammar school is somebody I talk to every day or not, if not multiple times a week. And I am, when the people that you talk to every day are people that you have a conversation with, because you can say, how did your meeting go? How did that happen? You're all in each other's mix. And so the um, that experience of prayer, of being in relationship with the God who loves you so much that when you were born said, I want to be with this person forever when you were conceived before that, when you thought of you at the beginning of time. And so the, if we talk to God every day, then we have much more to talk about. It's more unlike bumping into a friend in the, in the mall that you haven't seen for two years. You've got nothing to talk about. And that can be the way. If we only chatting at Christmas and Easter, we don't have a lot to say. You know, um, always the patron saint of the happy death is St. Joseph. And, uh, and it's, it's a good thing to pray to him. Um, another thing is to remember that if you live as if this were your last day, uh, then you would live it most fully. I did a funeral, two funerals of guys that died just suddenly in their 50s. And mm. one of them, the wife said, the last thing I said to him was, I love you. Hmm. 
and I think, wouldn't it be better to say I love you as opposed to, we'll talk about this when I get home. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and to say, okay, I love you. Make sure if you say that, you say, I love you. You know that, don't you? Um, and so uh, that, um, so those are some of the things about getting ready for heaven. Mm-hmm. Father Bill, how about the um, the chapter on exercise your right to rest? That really struck me because I think uh, with all these pandemic lockdowns and us having more time at home and kind of getting away from that frenetic lifestyle that we're so used to, it's caused a lot of us to reevaluate that as we're sort of getting back out and about how to have better balance in our lives. Um, what are your thoughts and on that? You know what? I think is um, is key to understand is we tend to think about uh, you know that that leisure is the where great ideas come from. It's not um, it's not just it's not from just toil and working every day. But you know, where does great poetry come from? Where does great love come from? Not from frenetic energy. And so, in a way, we should be instead of resting so that we can work harder. We should be working so that we can rest better and that that's really the end and the goal because that's the resting is is where prayer happens. It's resting in the Lord. You know, our liturgical experience should be that of play, not of duty. And so if you sort of translate that, you have to um, uh, you have to plan ahead to make sure you're creating space in your week. Um, so that you're, so that Sunday is a restful day. How many of us, when we were, I don't know how, uh, when I was little, um, we, you couldn't do anything on Sunday because the stores were all closed. Mm-hmm. And, and so it wasn't like there was a lot of errands to run because of the blue laws. And how great was that? I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sports, I think now the children all have sports on Sundays and it oh, used to be a crazy. day of family rest. Not just one team, but multiple teams. You know, one of the things I think that uh, unless you are like a trauma surgeon, the odds are you don't need to do what you need to do on a Sunday. You know, so true that if we that if we really put aside, you know, the things that we think need to get done, well, then we will get them done more efficiently the next day. You know, I think it's also time to to do what you love and what you rejoice in, you know, take a, that's when you take a walk or you grab the big paper and your frappa latte and just <laughs> lounge mm-hmm. around after you've had church and take some time to pray and say a rosary. Um, one of the things I think that can be really hard, especially in COVID is we're so socially isolated and what a great thing to do on a Sunday to have a either go visit in the yard or have a virtual um, visit with people where you're not rushed. You're Mm -hmm. just catching up. And then, um, you know, God gives us 168 hours a week and um, 167 of them are his gift to us. The one hour that we go to mass on Sunday is our gift back to him. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, it's kind of kind of a measly return if that's it. And so um, really maybe taking the time to worship God and to uh, be with him and then extend that to say, you know, as you sit around the dinner table to talk about the blessings of the week or what did you hear in the homily or um, so that you have a time to sort of break it open and just be leisurely about it. 
Mm-hmm. You're so good, too, at always uh, reminding us to really celebrate the feast days and the solemnities. You always give us a reminder. Maybe it's a good night to crack open a good bottle of wine or have a extra bite of your cheesecake or something like that. <laughs> exactly. To celebrate the feast days. Yeah, we've lost that sense um, of like also have feast a chapter day. That you'll, exactly. Right. Well, some of us. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us are a little too good at feasting. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. I agree. Um, you also have a chapter that deals with mass etiquette, which I think is, um, it's just interesting because we went so long watching mass online and maybe at the beginning of the pandemic, we were good about sort of the formality of that. But as time went on, we found ourselves, you know, slouching on the couch in our pajamas during online mass. So, um, so I love that you have that chapter on mass etiquette. And it's also, I think, well, the reason that I wrote that is because I had a, 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 a woman in my last parish who was there with two little kids, and um, the kids were squirmy, and the one of the old coots in the church said, you know, you should take them outside. Well, I found out about this. The woman left sobbing, and it turns out she wasn't even Catholic. She had promised to support her husband, who was raising the kids Catholic, and he was a Marine fighting in Afghanistan. Oh, my gosh, Father. And, it's, and I'm saying, you never know what people's lives are about. So, so one of the things to give a perspective is, like, you know, the old guy who can't hear, if your kid's squirmy, you might want to take the kids out. If the kids are squirmy, be grateful that they're in church at all. You know, to have give different perspectives on oh, maybe a little more empathetic experience of 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 how we view uh, each other in church. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're just about out of time here, Father, and we're so grateful for your time. But um, just a final question, a quick question on the issue of schools reopening during the pandemic, because here in our county, the public schools uh, are only online, and you heroically fought the effort to shut down the parochial schools as well. So I really, I just want to say thank you for your leadership on opening our Catholic schools for in-person education. And um, I know you're one of the people outside doing the temperature checks on the little kids. So wanted to thank you for that and um, and for your time. And we hope all of our listeners will go right on to Amazon and buy your book. That's great. Thank you very much. God bless you both. And thanks for the good work you do. Okay. Thank you, Father. And we'll be Come up to Springfield. head to Massachusetts for sure. Okay. God bless you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. We're preparing for the Feast of Christ the King in two weeks, and Jesus this Sunday will teach us a key aspect of his kingdom and how to be ready for it. He does so using an image that might seem a little strange to us, but the details of which would have been very well understood by his contemporaries in Palestine. There were two main stages in a marriage. The first would be the exchange of vows. When this took place, the couple was married, 
but they would continue to live apart for a while, even up to a couple of years, while the husband prepared everything to welcome his new wife into his home and to pay for what would be an eight-day wedding celebration. The second stage was when the husband would come to the bride's house to pick her up and take her to the new home. He would send out some of his groomsmen with word that he was coming, meaning that he could arrive within hours or up to a week. He would be accompanied by all the guests from his side and meet his wife with all the guests from her side, her bridesmaids and others. Both groups would then process back to his home. When they arrived, they would celebrate the nuptials for eight straight days, three big meals a day with all their family and friends, something they considered far more enjoyable than leaving everybody behind for a honeymoon. In order to decrease the amount of guests one would have to feed for eight days, the bridegroom sometimes would come in the middle of the night. Those who weren't ready lost their spots. As soon as the bridegroom took the bride into their new home, the doors would be shut to prevent latecomers from crashing their party. This wedding tradition, universal at Jesus' time, still found today in certain parts of the Holy Land and Middle East. Jesus used that image as the background to communicate to us how we should be living in his kingdom, preparing for his return as bridegroom at the end of our life or at the end of the world, whichever comes first. Jesus contrasts five wise bridesmaids versus five foolish ones, wanting us to imitate the lessons we see in the five prudent virgins. November is the month in which, as you know, the whole church reflects on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And Jesus, by this image of the banquet, tries to help us prepare well for the first two so that we may experience the third and avoid the fourth. But for this to happen, we need to learn three crucial lessons from the wise virgins. First lesson is vigilance for the bridegroom's coming. The heralds have already gone out to announce the second coming of Jesus. We need to be ready to go with him whenever he arrives. Death for a Christian is not meant to be a scary thing. It's the time when Jesus the bridegroom comes for us to take us to his home when we hope to celebrate with him forever. We're called to await him with eager longing, with expectation. He wants the lamps of our hearts burning for him, full of the oil of love. The best way for us to stay alert for the return of the bridegroom is for us to be ready with hearts burning for the presence of him now. The more we long for Jesus in the Eucharist, the more we attentively listen to his word and sacred scripture, the more we recognize him in the persons and events of each day and love and embrace them as we would love and embrace him, the more ready we'll be to embrace Christ when he appears without disguise. The second thing Jesus teaches us in the image of the ten bridesmaids is that there are certain things we can't borrow. Just as the unwise virgins didn't have enough oil for their lamps, and oil stands for expectant love of the Lord, so we can't borrow someone else's faith, hope, or love. We need to have our own. Otherwise, we'll be caught unready and left outside. I can't count how many times people in my priestly life who aren't faithful to the practice of the faith tell me that their mother or their grandmother is an active parishioner or their great-uncle a priest. I explain that we can't borrow another's relationship with the Lord, another's faith or hope, another's soul or spiritual life. For those who are faithful to Christ, there's a lesson here too, that there are certain things we can't lend or give even to those we love the most. They must take responsibility for developing an eager, expectant, vigilant, faithful love for God on their own. Those who think that they can borrow others' relationships with the Lord when the Lord comes are indeed foolish, as Jesus says about the unwise bridesmaids. The third lesson is that there's a time that can be too late. Certain things can't be obtained at the last minute. 
The unwise virgins were caught off guard. They couldn't borrow oil, so they had to try to obtain some on their own. But they missed the bridegroom and were locked out. They banged on the door insistently saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But then Jesus in the parable replied with words that I think are among the saddest and most frightening of all of sacred scripture. Truly I tell you, I do not know you. For the Lord to know us, for us to be on time for the wedding banquet, we have to spend our time here getting to know him intimately as a friend, as a savior, as a God, especially in prayer. Many of us put off the most important thing in life, just to make God first in life. We allow the devil to deceive us by saying there's always time, to insinuate that we can live like the good thief, commit our sins, do our own thing, presuming that the Lord will give us the chance at the end to say one prayer so that everything will work out. Jesus tells us that those who would imitate the foolish bridesmaids in this way will have a rude awakening. And they'll come to a time when there will be no time left, when the door will be shut. Now is the time for us to get to know the Lord so that he will never say, I don't know you. Now is the time for us to be ready for his return. All of us have known people who have tragically died unexpectedly, even young people. And the moral Jesus gives us at the end of today's parable is crystal clear. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. To be awake means never to be asleep to God, but always to be alert, full of love, waiting for his return. So three lessons. An eager, expectant, waiting for the Lord's coming in all these ways. A recognition that we can't borrow what we're going to need to meet him when he comes. And a loving admonition from the Lord not to procrastinate on our preparations. Every Mass is meant to help us with each of these three things. If we're truly ready to meet the Lord each week at Mass, with our souls clean from serious sin, with our hearts hungering for him, with the Lord himself, the light of the world, burning inside of us, fueled by the oil of love. Then we'll never be caught off guard, whether he comes today, tomorrow, or, or decades from now. Every Catholic Church proclaims, the bridegroom is here, let us go to meet Christ the Lord. And the wise are those who do. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 